The last uh, phrase, the repeated phrase of that song, Father, not my will, but your be done. Yours be done, excuse me. Uh, it's, harder to, it's hard to think of a simpler way to explain church growth than that phrase. That as the people of God, with the Word of God and the Spirit of God, just continually submit. That's how God builds His church. That is, we say to the Lord, Father, not my will, but yours be done. We yield to the work of God's Spirit in our hearts. We fulfill the role that He has for each of us to play in the life of the church, and the church grows. It's the work that God does by His will at work in each of us. Now, that doesn't mean, as that happens in a church, it doesn't mean that there won't be growing pains. There'll be times when we face challenges, when we face difficulty or a little bit of tension or uh, a felt need isn't met the way we thought it would be. We can experience this in the church. Maybe we have to sit closer to one another in our worship services. Maybe we have to take advantage of a growing room for a while. Maybe it's difficult to find a parking spot. Maybe we don't know everybody that we see at church on Sunday morning. Maybe we feel ignored. Maybe we feel like we wish things could go back to the way they were. But that's not God's solution to growing pains in the church. God's solution is that His Spirit would be at work in the people of that congregation. And those people would then meet those needs in the church, and the church would continue to grow. And so as we consider Acts 6 today, we see a growing church with growing needs. But as those needs are met, the church multiplies powerfully. In fact, I think God has designed the church to thrive as a result of growing pains. And so today we consider how you and I can meet needs in the church so that the Word of God would spread and the church would multiply. How is it that you and I can meet needs in the body of Christ in such a way that the Word of God spreads and the church multiplies? Well, let's dig in together to Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. So if you don't have your Bibles open there, you can go ahead and open them. And we'll consider what it looks like for you and I to meet needs in the church so that the Word of God spreads and the church multiplies. The first thing that's important for us as we seek to meet needs in the church is to recognize that as the church grows, we should expect growing needs. You could call them growing pains if you want to. But as God accomplishes His purpose in the church, we should expect growing needs needs. It's a part of what happens as a church grows. This is the summary Luke gives us in Acts 6 verse 1. Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint. Right? So the verse starts just all happy, right? You got these warm, fuzzy feelings. You could imagine happy music playing in the background. During the time that the church is multiplying, the number of followers are multiplying, oh, this is so nice, there arose a complaint. Ah, okay. Now we see what's actually happening in the church. 
There's a complaint that arises. That word arise means it probably started small. A few members were experiencing something and the need sort of grew. The complaint rises. But it's interesting. You think that with that complaint, things are just going downhill. But as I mentioned at the beginning, we come through this and verse 7 says that the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied. So growing pains are not actually the problem. It's how they're addressed and how they're met in the church. Let's get a sense of what this complaint was. The verse tells us that there was a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Now let's imagine what's going on in the early church. Remember the nature of that church. We've been studying that over the first five chapters of the book of Acts. This is a group of 5,000 or more believers gathered in Jerusalem. And they're not all from Jerusalem. Remember, this happened at the Feast of Pentecost. When thousands began to come to Christ, those who had pilgrimed to Jerusalem for that feast. So they had one thing in common, the religion of Judaism... And they now believed in Christ. And so 3,000 plus language barriers were a part of that early church. Those 3,000. Some of them were from out of town. And so you remember, we read in Acts chapter 2 how the out-of-towners had needs that needed to be met. And so people sold the extra things they had or the money they had. They gave in order that those needs could be met. They're staying in each other's homes and sharing meals. And then Peter preaches again and I can imagine some of those 3,000s, think maybe of those who were hosting people frequently in their home, kind of thinking like, Peter, maybe we could wait on another message. We're kind of maxed out here. Peter preaches again and it says 5,000 believers are in the church. And that could be actually 5,000 added to the 3,000. We're taking the conservative route and saying it's 5,000 total plus It's a big church, and God continues to grow the church, and these people are, again, they're from all over. Among those people, those believers in Christ, there are a couple groups that have already begun to form, and lest we get too down on the early church, the term Hebrew was used of those who spoke Hebrew or Aramaic, so this is a language barrier we're talking about. Hellenist is those who spoke Greek as their first language, so this is really based on a language barrier. And in this daily distribution where they're meeting needs, at the top of the list were the widows, because in this culture, they could not work. So there was no way. You know, some of the pilgrims that came to town probably started finding work where they could make money and and could provide for their family. But the widows were unable to do that. So it was on the church to begin providing for them. And you had some of these widows who were from out of town and spoke Greek. And you had some of these widows who were from in town and spoke Hebrew or Aramaic. And so there's a language barrier and maybe a little bit of an ethnic divide as well. Some of the Hellenists, the Greek speakers, were probably from Greece. That's a typical reason to speak Greek. Doesn't mean that all of them were from there. Some of them may have been not Israelites by descent, meaning they were Greek and had converted to Judaism. Later in the text, we'll read about Nicholas, who was a proselyte, meaning he was 
a Greek individual who converted to Judaism and then converted to Christianity. So that is even among some of these widows. Now, likely this isn't on purpose. It's probably the result of the language barrier and the challenges of 5,000 plus people trying to take care of the needs. And there was a group of these Greek-speaking widows who were being ignored in the daily distribution. They, They weren't getting what they needed. And so this complaint arises, and eventually it gets so loud, so to speak, that it comes to the apostles, and they're aware of it, and they need to do something about this. Now, the text doesn't highlight this, but the word complaint is the word for murmuring, and it's used again in Philippians 2.14, do all things without complaining. It's the same word. So, I would say as we look at this text, the complaining was probably not the right way to handle this need. I think as soon as the need was seen, they could have come to the apostles and said, hey, this isn't happening, we can can make something work here, but I think what actually happened was there's all this murmuring. Instead of talking to the people that can meet the need, they're talking to one another and complaining until it gets loud enough for the apostles to hear. So, not a great example in that sense. But that's not what's highlighted in the text. What's highlighted is that as a part of the growth, there were more needs to be met. As the church grows, expect growing needs. One of the uh, new things I experienced as a married man was the joy of shopping for baby clothes. My wife loves to shop for baby clothes. So when people in the church are expecting or having a baby, there's nothing she loves more than running to some nearby store that has baby clothes. And I'll be very transparent, as a single man before I was married, I never once had shopped for baby clothes. (laughs) I knew they existed. I knew babies needed them. I knew stores carried baby clothes. But I had never wandered through that department of the store, never purchased anything, but Carrie loves to shop for baby clothes. I don't know whether they're they're miniature, they're cute. So in my married years, I have learned some things about shopping for baby clothes, right? You need some onesies, right? And so the the, the baby has those to to meet the needs. And then I've noticed that Carrie doesn't always shop for, you know, just the newborn clothes, even if the baby is just a newborn. She often buys the three to six month clothing and the six to nine month clothing. Why? Because there's an expectation that the baby will grow. In fact, some newborns, I've learned, might even be ready for the three- to six-year-month-old stuff right away, right? It doesn't take long. And so she wisely buys multiple sizes so that, you know, the, the parent can choose what the baby's going to fit into and so on and so forth. Why? Because growth is expected, right? When children outgrow their clothes, there, there might be a moment of frustration, Right? Like, oh, i got to find new clothes for you again. Your pants are too short or your sleeves are too short or whatever it is. But ultimately, we don't tell the child, could you shrink a little bit? <laughs> could you just stop the growth process? This is getting frustrating. Right. Why? Because growth is a good thing. We want the baby to grow. We want the children to grow. And yes, there may be that moment of, oh, got to go shopping again. But it's a good thing. It's a good thing. As God grows his church, we must remember to look at it as a good thing. Will, will there be those moments of frustration where it's like, oh, okay, 
got to keep looking for a parking spot or got to welcome more people into my row or, you know, whatever it is, but to rejoice that God is growing His church. As God does His work to grow the church, expect growing needs. That leads to some growing pains. Like, think of these widows. Their, their needs, their daily needs were not being met, which likely refers to food. Daily distribution likely refers to food. What other things are needed on a daily basis, right? It's probably food. And so their needs are not being met, and some pretty serious needs here. Food. So as the church grows, there will be growing pains that had to be uncomfortable for them. And I'm thankful that some in the church were seeing that need and doing something about it. Our growing pains can look like any number of things. Crowded bathrooms or a cramped foyer or more unfamiliar faces or less personal attention or someone in your seat or less of a direct connection with the main leader. I've thought about that in this early church with 5,000 plus members. How many of them knew Peter personally? Probably not too many. I've been asked often as a pastor, what's the ideal church size? (laughs) What's the right size for a church? And a lot of us think about that. But what we're thinking of is in terms of, you know, where would I be most comfortable in a church? At a church of 50, at a church of 100, at a church of 200, at a church of 1,000. You know, here's a church of 5,000. Maybe that's the ideal size of a church. But actually, as we study Scripture, there's really no answer to that question. What's the ideal church size? Growing. Growing. That's the ideal church size. Because that's what God intends for His church. And so as a church grows, there will always be growing pains. And there should be. And God uses that to grow the church even more. We're going to continue to see how that unfolds in this text. So friends, as we encounter the growing pains that come along with a growing church, resist the urge to murmur and complain. I wonder, what is our response to the changes that come with growth? We could say on the one hand, well, why doesn't anyone yada, yada, yada? Or, how can I help? We could say, I wish it was the way it used to be. Or, I'm excited about what God is doing. We could say, I'm tired of, you fill in the blank. Or we could say, God's using the challenges to teach me, and I'm learning and growing. Growing needs are to be expected, and so we are encouraged to be part of the solution. (laughs) One one pastor, when I was going through uh, pastoral training and so forth, one pastor uh, shared a trick that he used in his ministry, and you may see me do it as well. But someone would come to him and say, I have an idea to meet a need in the church. I think we should do this, 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 and this, and kind of lay it out for the pastor. And my friend told me that what he would do in response to that is says, you know what? That's a great idea. How do you plan to get started? (laughs) What he was doing was, little by little, hopefully teaching the members that, well, hey, if you see a need, meet a need. Maybe the Lord brought it to your attention for a reason. If that need is bigger than you, then like we see in the early church, bring it to the leadership. 
so that the leaders can help lead the congregation to select the right people to meet that need and be ready to be a part of that team because you may be needed to help meet that need. Well, not only should we expect growing needs, but as we continue in the text, verses 2 and 4, we see that we should seek out Spirit-filled members to meet those needs and promote the ministry of the Word. Now, that's a long sentence, but it's sort of exactly what happens, how this unfolds in verses 2 through 4. The need is brought to the apostles, and notice how they respond in verse 2. The twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now that table is a reference to the table where the daily distribution was made. It was a, a place probably located in the temple where they would come to this table and as they had needs, the apostles could distribute to those needs. We'd already read that that, that had been what's happening Uh, so far in the early church, but those needs are growing. And so the twelve gathers the whole church, all the disciples, all the followers. It's a big gathering, 5,000 plus, and they announce to these people, look, it's not desirable. That word is really special. It's not pleasing. That's the word, pleasing. Why would they say it's not pleasing? Well, there's a phrase common in Scripture where that same word is used frequently, pleasing to God. Now, it doesn't say here pleasing to God, but I think it's safe to guess that that's probably what the apostles had in mind when they say it's not pleasing. It's not pleasing to God for us to leave the Word of God. Why would it not be pleasing to God for them to leave the Word of God? Well, remember, what had the Lord Jesus Christ appointed the apostles to do specifically? to minister the Word of God. They were to take what Jesus had taught them and to declare it and to preach it as a part of the establishing of the early church. Now, the twelve here are functioning as sort of pastors of this early church. They're not called that in the text because this is a transition time and the church is still being established. And so we don't have specific offices yet of pastors and deacons as, as we'll be instructed later in the New Testament to do. And so you've got these 12 apostles serving as pastors of this early church, and they're appointed by Christ to be preaching the word, to focus on that. And so it wouldn't be pleasing to God to step away from that to serve tables, to take care of these growing needs. They wouldn't have the time to focus on the word of God. So they present an idea in verse 3. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men, good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. So, so far, the management of the distribution tables had been under the authority of the leaders, the apostles. But now they're saying, congregation, you select seven men, and they have three qualifications at this point, full of the Holy Spirit, good reputation, and wisdom. And you can see how each one of those might be crucial. Good reputation. This is a little bit of a tense area in the life of the church. The Hellenists and the Hebrews are kind of at each other. Well, you're forgetting our widows and, you know, they're complaining and so on and so forth. And so they need men who are respected by all. Good reputation. Probably the most important qualification, full of the Holy Spirit. 
that their life is marked by a yieldedness to the Holy Spirit so that the fruit of the Spirit is evidence in their lives all the time and the multitude has been able to see it. Yeah, that guy's walking with God. He submits to the Spirit. I see the fruit of the Spirit in him. Full of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, wisdom. Distributing to needs in the church required skill and discernment and the ability to understand needs and how to distribute and so forth. So wisdom is an, is an understandable qualification as well. So the, the congregation was to select them and the apostles then would appoint them. And we actually see this played out later in the text when they lay hands on them. But that word appointing has the idea of giving authority. So what had been the apostles' responsibility to do this daily distribution, before the congregation, they're saying, okay, you've selected these men. Now we're giving over responsibility. They're going to manage the daily distribution of the table. So follow their lead, Right? Follow their decisions. Let them manage it and take care of the rising needs in the church. So they hand over this ministry uh, to these seven men, and the congregation selects them. And just to be sure the people don't miss it, they repeat in verse 4 what they said already. We, the apostles, will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. We will devote ourselves. That's the phrase. It's a strong word to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. This is how the leaders of the church are to participate and complete their role in leading the church so that the members of the church can help to meet needs in such a way that the promotion of the Word goes on. So these seven that the congregation are going to select are going to meet this need so that the apostles can stay focused on preaching the Word. So the instructions are to seek out spirit-filled members to meet needs and promote the ministry of the word. Maybe you've participated in uh, you know an activity that required some teamwork. Uh, I can remember working on uh, repairing a car, and uh, I am not uh, highly skilled or knowledgeable in uh, car repair. And so in this case, I had a friend who knew what he was doing. Uh, and so he was helping with the vehicle and working on making the repairs, and it was my vehicle, so I was nearby and sort of watching, and, but I wanted to help, right? And uh, so at one point, my friend had the, the flashlight in his mouth, right, and both hands up in the vehicle trying to work on something, and I thought, well, can I hold the flashlight, you know, so you could actually focus, and, and you could do what you're doing, and so, you know, I could reach in there and That was my highly technical way of participating in the car repair. Chief flashlight holder was the title I gave myself. And uh, anyway, he repaired the vehicle and I held the flashlight so he could see what was going on so he could complete the repair. He had his skill and I had my skill, right? Uh, Great hand grip or something like that. I don't know. Anyway, so as he did his part... I could do my part by jumping in and saying, hey, let me hold that for you so you can do what you're skilled at doing. And trying to hold the light and trying to hold the tools and all of these things, it it wasn't allowing him to do his job effectively. And so by holding the light, I could free him up to work more productively. This is kind of how God has designed the church to function. That as members meet needs in the church, 
by the power of the Spirit in them, it allows the Word of God to go forth more consistently and faithfully in the church. It allows the leaders of the church to focus on prayer and the ministry of the Word. And so as we think about applying this in the life of our church, it's important, first of all, that we bring needs up. Not as complaints, but to help meet needs. Now, there are times that as you see a need, you're able to just meet that need. To rely on the Spirit in you and say, you know what? I could say an encouraging word to that person. I could greet the guest that came in. I could go over to so-and-so's house and be a blessing to them. I could visit, what's their name, at the hospital. You should probably look up their name first, but... These are things that the members of the church can do and meet needs as we see those needs come up. And as a part of doing those things, there will be times that the need is greater than you can meet on your own. And so it becomes clear, like the need in the early church, you know what, I need to bring this to the leadership, not murmur about it to people around me. Oh, I wish things were the way they used to be. No, no. But to bring it to the leadership and say, hey, I've noticed this is a need and I'm willing to help. I I know I can't do it by myself, but what do you think? How can we meet this need? Protect those appointed to the ministry of the word by being ready to serve or have individuals in mind whom you might suggest to help meet that need. Have ideas for solutions and be willing to serve as well. Maybe even more simply, we could just all be encouraged to be spirit-filled people. As I said at the beginning after singing that song, probably the greatest way each of us can grow the church is to just keep yielding to God's spirit. That if there's sin in my life, I would repent and confess it. That if God's burning my heart through the words of Scripture, that I would listen and obey. That I would forgive as I've been forgiven. That I would live out the life of Christ toward those around me and treat them the way He has treated me. This is Spirit-filled living, and it's probably the simplest way Each of us can participate in the growth of the church. To be a spirit-filled person means that we help the body to grow. You know, it's interesting to me, the apostles did not select the complainers to meet this need. Those are the ones who saw the need, but they were also evidencing that they were not spirit-filled. The Holy Spirit doesn't complain. That's pretty obvious in Scripture. And so it became clear, oh, the complainers, well, they're not spirit-filled. Let's find those who are spirit-filled to meet this need. And so one of the greatest ways you can participate in meeting needs in the church is just keep yielding to God's Spirit. You hear yourself complain, you know, oh, wait a second, that's not from God. That was from me. I need to repent of that, right? And we yield again to God's Holy Spirit. I wonder, would I have been on the list of spirit-filled individuals they sought for to meet this need in the church? It's a good question to ask. Seek out spirit-filled members to meet those needs and promote the ministry of the Word. Finally, in verses 5-7, through we see how this unfolds. And we're going to see number three today, that we fulfill our role so that the word spreads and the church multiplies. As we've learned about the church before, everybody has a role. 
And as we fulfill that role, as we do what God's leading us to do, the church multiplies and the word spreads. Verse 5, the saying pleased the whole multitude. Wow, all 5,000 plus members are like, hey, that's a great idea. Twelve apostles, leaders, let's put it into practice. And so they actually do it. The multitude selects these seven men. We don't know a lot about them. These are all Greek names, and so it's likely that they would be in the Hellenist category, which makes a whole lot of sense, right? If these are Greek-speaking widows that need help, why not select Greek speakers to be able to help them? It's also likely that they're all of Jewish descent, except for Nicholas, because it's pointed out that he's a proselyte, meaning he was probably of some other ethnic descent, but had converted to Judaism and now also had converted to Christianity. And so these seven men are selected. Stephen is given a little extra introduction here because he becomes a little more famous heading into the end of chapter 6 and chapter 7. And so Luke's kind of helping us get to know Stephen before Stephen's story comes up. Stephen especially was full of faith and the Holy Spirit. There's really very little we know about the rest of these men. Philip will come up later in the book as well. So they select these men. They're following the instruction of the disciples. Verse 6, they select them. They bring them before the apostles. And the apostles pray and lay hands on them. And this is that appointing them over this business that had already been talked about uh, back in verse 3. They commit them to God, so they're they're seeking the Lord's help. They're praying, asking God to use them in the service of the church. They give them wisdom, probably don't know all the things that they prayed for. Just guessing, you know, these are some of the things, but they clearly want God's help, so they pray. And then they lay hands on them, and this is a way of appointing somebody or commissioning somebody. In fact, uh, we still do this in the church sometimes. Uh, commissioning missionaries, we do it, or at a uh, pastoral ordination or installation, you might see it in those cases. And it's just symbolic. All it does is signify we are commissioning this person to do a task. And so too here, the leaders of the church before the congregation are saying these seven men now have authority. They've been commissioned to oversee the daily distribution and make sure especially that these widows have their needs met. And so as a result of that, verse 7, then, and the word kind of means like so, or you could even say as a result, the word of God spread. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So, Because the need was met, the apostles can focus on preaching the word, and the word of God spreads, and the church continues to grow and multiply. And then there's a final comment. A great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Historian Josephus, in one of his uh, writings, mentions that there may have been as many as 18,000 priests at any given time. That totally surprised me. I never read something like that before. Now, we don't know how accurate that is, but he was writing around that time period. And typically what they would do is that they would actually live and work somewhere, 
and then on a two-week basis would go to the temple and serve their time as a priest. That sounds like it's prison, but anyway, uh, they would go to the temple and serve there in the temple for two weeks and then go back to their home and go back to their job. And so there were many priests, and so many of these priests are, are beginning to hear the word. And Remember the context of what's going on in the early church. You could make the argument these are sort of the least likely to come to Christ. It was the high priests and the Sadducees and the priestly line and authority that was really resisting the preaching of the name of Jesus Christ. And so this is no small statement when Luke says that a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith, meaning believing the gospel. Submitting to God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think it's especially significant that this comes right after the church meets this growing pain. As the Spirit is at work among them, as God's love is seen in the people, as the needs are met and the Word of God goes forth, God does something amazing. And the Word spreads, the disciples multiply, and even the priests begin to believe. As we each fulfill our role, the word spreads and the church multiplies. Maybe you've had the opportunity to participate in a band or an orchestra. I know some of you in the room have and have enjoyed that. Uh, During high school and uh, a little bit in college, I played in a uh, band orchestra, both, I guess. Anyway, one of the neatest things about playing in an ensemble like that is the teamwork that it involves. So think about this for a moment. Uh, In a typical music score written for a band or an orchestra, you have a long list of instruments, right? And so uh, the trumpets, that was my instrument, the trumpets have a certain role, usually just to be loud and obnoxious is kind of the role of the trumpets, but they have their own melody line and so forth, right? And then you have the flutes. My wife plays the flute, and a number of you in the congregation play the flute, right? And so they have their role, and it's usually moving quickly and up high and all of this, right? And then you have clarinets, and you have an oboe, and a French horn, and a trombone, and tubas, and baritones, and I mean, all sorts of instruments. If you get into orchestra, you add violins, and violas, and cellos, and upright basses, and all of these instruments, and they all have different parts, rests at different times, and places where the melody comes through their part. And it's amazing, when you're a part of a group like that, one that's functioning well anyway, and you come together to play a piece, together you create a sound that no individual instrument could do on its own. And each of them has to follow the leadership of the director up front who's keeping the beat and making sure that all of the members are, are tracking along and staying on the same page. But as each person, you know, they're, they're watching their music and they're watching the director and they're counting their rests and they're coming in at the right time. And all of a sudden, you create music and a sound that none of them could do on their own. And in fact, really couldn't do without the others, right? The trumpets can't just fill in for the clarinets. It doesn't work. The tuba can't fill in for the flutes. It doesn't work. Each part is needed, and each one needs to fulfill its role to come together and to make beautiful music. And it's a neat picture of how God has designed the church to work. 
Thankfully, we're not all trumpets. We're not all flutes. We're not all tubas, right? We all have a different role to play. But as God gives us His music, His instructions, we function in the church according to our role as we submit to His Word. As we operate in the life of the church the way He's called us to operate. But even beyond the band or orchestra metaphor, the church is far greater because God has given His Spirit in each one of us. So that no matter our background or instrument or skill level, we have everything we need to fulfill our role in the church, to participate, to serve, to meet needs, and to confess, and to yield, and to encourage, and to build up, and to share, and to bear burdens, and so on and so forth. So friends, I encourage you to fulfill your role. That may begin for you today by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. You see, as the church operates the way God intends, the Word of God goes forth and even the priests believe. Maybe you're here today hearing the truth of the gospel for the first time. That there's this one who died for your sins. The things you look back on and know that were wrong for you to have done. A holy God looks on those things and in His righteousness looks on them with wrath because our deeds are evil. But in His just mercy, He sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that son, Jesus, as we sang together, said, Father, not my will, but your be done, and and took our sins upon himself and died on the cross in our place. Having paid for our sins, he rose from the grave three days later, just as he said, and ascended on high to the Father's right hand, just as he said. And as He ascended the Father's right hand, just as He promised, He sent His Spirit to indwell those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ so that the body of Christ, the church, has everything it needs to live according to His plan. Maybe for you today it begins by trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior. Stop trying to function in your own strength. To stop trying to build your own righteousness in some attempt to outweigh the things you've done wrong. It's time to just trust in Jesus. If you have done that, then consider what's your role in the local church. If you've trusted in Christ as Savior, then God has given you His Spirit, and then you have a role to play in the church. As we look at this text, the way we have sort of distributed these roles in our church, seeking to follow texts like this and others, is that congregants, members of the church, that's all of us who've trusted in Christ and joined the local church here, have various roles to play. We use sort of three phrases to help divide it up here. Pastors lead, deacons serve, congregation decides. So, pastors are to equip the saints. They're to share the Word, kind of like the leaders of the early church here, devoting themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word, leading by example and giving instruction and leading toward decisions. 
serving in all these ways, but not doing all the things of the ministry because that would be impossible. Deacons, which again, we don't know if Acts 7 is talking, or excuse me, Acts 6 here is talking about deacons or not. This is still a transition time in the church. We don't have pastors and deacons yet. We have apostles sort of functioning as pastors. And I think it's likely that these seven men who are selected give us kind of an idea or maybe a framework to think about as we think about how deacons function in the church. It is interesting, the word deacon is actually a transliteration of the Greek word that we have in the Bible for the role of a deacon, and it just means to serve. It actually came up in this text a couple times, the root of that word. You could see it back in verse 2. The apostles say, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. That's the uh, verbal form of the word deacon. Same root. As you go on in the text, the apostles have a role in ministering or serving, deaconing, you could say, in verse 4. They have the ministry of the word, the deaconing of the word, the serving, sharing, the ministering. And so deacons serve. We pattern our deacons in many ways after this passage. They're intended to free up the pastors to focus on prayer and the ministry of the word. They're appointed over various areas of ministry in the church that they manage so that the church can grow. They are to be spirit-filled men of good reputation and wisdom. They are to meet needs, and indeed, our deacons do just that. I'm thankful for the evidence in our church of functioning this way according to what God has set before us as helpful. But then we come to the congregation. Congregations decide. Did you notice in the text, uh, the apostles told the congregations, you select from among you men who can meet this need, men who are spirit-filled. And so again, we seek to do that. Not every member of the congregation can be assigned to meet the needs of these widows. That would be overwhelming. So select a few who can take care of this. We see the church making a number of decisions through the New Testament. Here's one example, selecting these men. And so in offices, pastors and deacons, the congregation works on those things. Budget, the finances of the church. Membership, welcoming believers into the body of Christ. Missionaries, sending out of missionaries. Discipline and restoration. All these things we see in the New Testament. The large decisions of the church. And so there are a number of ways you can participate in that as a member of the church. Well, first of all, if you haven't joined the local church, to join the local church so that you can fulfill your role as a spirit-filled member of the body of Christ in a local church. Next, to actually come to church, which here you are. I'm glad you're here today. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 reminds us of one of the great purposes of church attendance. Listen to these verses. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. So we are to consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. And often we think of stirring up love and good works in other people, but I I really think it starts with in me. 
that I'm to consider one another so that love and good works are stirred up in me to serve and to give and to love others. Well, how do we keep stirring that up in our hearts? Verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. You see, when we gather, we see one another, we love one another, and our hearts are stirred to meet needs. So come, pray, participate in the decisions of the life of the church. In fact, we have our very own deacon elections coming up in just a couple weeks and a few other offices of the church and encourage you as members to participate in those things. Congregations also uh, fulfill this idea through committees. We have a number of committees where people serve and are given authority by the congregation to meet needs in the church. We also have ministries that help to accomplish these things. When we each do our part, the Word of God spreads and the church multiplies. So friends, it's an encouragement for all of us to continue meeting needs in the church. So the Word of God spreads and God build His church. Growing pains are not bad. In fact, God has designed the church to thrive as a result of growing pains. There are opportunities to rely on God's Spirit as the Word of God spreads, and to meet needs so that God builds His church. So the question for all of us then is, how does God want to use you and I to meet needs in the church? So the Word spreads and the church grows. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You for this text. We thank You for the work You are doing still today here and abroad, to build your church as you've promised. We want to be a people that are submitted to you, that it could be said of each of us that we are of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, ready to jump in and serve and meet needs in the body of Christ so that the word of God can spread and you can multiply the followers. Father, use us in this way for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.